On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're looking for romance in the 1940s with Emily Mortimer's new BBC miniseries, The Pursuit of Love, taking a ride along with some carers you probably wouldn't want to clap for in Bloods on Sky and LFG for the long-awaited second season of Mythic Quest. No rouges, please. Bit of niche MMO humour for you there. And finally, we are joined by Josh Dumel, who comes on the show to talk about Netflix's new superhero series, Jupiter's Legacy. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that has spectacularly failed to overcome its egregious animation bias this week and has not, not, in fact, reviewed Star Wars The Bad Batch, uh, but only because A, it's embargoed until May the 4th, and B, it's feature length and life's too short. But, but, joining me this week on our disgustingly live-action-centric podcast are my two partially animated co-hosts, the Hannah and Barbera of modern TV journalism, if you will, Terry White and Boyd Hilton. How are we both? Good. Can I just say that uh, anybody would think from that introduction that James fought for that Star Wars animation. That Boyd and I said, hell no. I think you'll find that James was the one who made the call for us not to do the Bad Batch. And what was it you said about... um, Animation and the Bad Batch in... I don't know what you're talking about. In an Empire meeting the other... Yes, I think Ooh. you do. So. <laughs> it's 77 minutes long. I mean, also, it's to be 77 fair... Minutes 77 minutes long. minutes long. <laughs> it's, also, very... it's not... <laughs> This is a this is a this is a, a, a crucial detail, um, but it's not embargoed until May fourth. It's out on May the fourth on Star Wars Day. It's only embargoed until first thing Tuesday morning. We could have delayed the podcast for those fans of Star Wars and reviewed it on the Monday Tuesday morning if you really wanted to. That is true. That is true. I could have delayed the podcast by a day or half a day. To make room for the We've bad batch. We've done it batch. before. We've done it before. We've done it before, but in this case, I didn't think it was worth it because you I'm prejudiced against animation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, look, yeah. This, look, this is fair. I think on the one hand, with Bad Batch, like I haven't watched The Clone Wars because it's a cartoon, and therefore I feel like I would not fully appreciate the mastery that is The Bad Batch, of course, being spun off of Clone Wars. So I felt that I didn't want to. Are but, you not going to um, watch it at all then? Is that what you're Bad Batch. Us? Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll add it to the queue after Clone Wars it. Resistance you and Rebels. Watch it. No, I won't watch, <laughs> you it. Won't watch it. But but the, I mean, look, let's let's address the elephant in the room here before we go into the show proper. So so all three of us have shall, shall we say not embraced the world of you know TV animation, be it adult animation, be it you know mm. Bad Patch, which I guess sort of straddles the divide. Um, why is that? Are we just terrible people? Because a lot of it's, it's shit. A good question. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not fair to a whole kind of you know and actually yeah i mean i've always animation for me both in terms of film and tv has never been kind of my my wheelhouse really and i've got much more into um animated movies over the last few years which i think is just by the nature of my actual job and i did have a a I wouldn't use the word boyfriend. I'd use the word companion for a while. Who um, tried to get? That's a good get, story already. Who tried to get me into Bob's Burgers? And Terry's he, gentleman companion. He would watch. He would make us watch like three episodes of Bob's Burgers before bed. And I, is he I, the same one who tried to get you to watch The Wire? Oh no, different one. He thought The Wire was way too mainstream. Um, he tried to get me to watch Bob's Burgers, and I found it quite fun. I suppose what I what does rankle with me is 
when people do that thing, which I think is very basic, which is take animation, which obviously has certain connotations around um, innocence and and all of that, because it's often traditionally been aimed at children, and then they fill it with like you know, they drop a cunt every five minutes, and it, do you know what I mean? It's that that kind of juxtaposition. <laughs> just, they drop a cunt every five minutes. The juxtaposition of adult material and and kind of a younger treatment. That that <laughs> thing that was very popular in comedy for a while kind of does my head in. Um, but I am I acknowledge my animation bias, and I am attempting to. To get over it, Wolf Walkers, right? Is have you guys seen Wolf Walkers? Yeah, incredible, yeah, incredible. incredible. Yeah. Um, so I think it's easier with films. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I'm I'm the same. I've well, they're, I, they're I mean, shorter. I love Pixar. Yeah, right. I mean, they are sort of shorter <laughs> <laughs> on a fundamental level. But also, a self-contained story, a self-contained yeah. story. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a, in a film, generally, it's easier to to come to terms with. I do have. I, I've mentioned it many times. An inbuilt issue with animated even the simpsons which i acknowledge and i've said this before one of the greatest tv achievements of all time i've never loved it quite i i do really like the simpsons don't get me wrong, but i've never loved it in the same way that a lot of other people do for a lot of people i think for, for ricky gervais for example it's like one of the greatest things ever he also always talks about the simpsons and was a guest tonight. but i have to say i'm glad we've got onto this subject because i bet i meant to talk last week about the morrissey simpsons episode oh. do you know about this mm-hmm. yeah it's hilarious where I think it's arriving on Sky pretty soon, um, if not already, where there's a character based clearly based on Morrissey, although not entirely, called Quillaby, voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch, who actually sings the Morrissey Smith-style songs in the thing. And Morrissey is so furious about it that he actually issued a statement in which he complained <laughs> about being, having the piss taken out of him. I mean, he said, he said, in a world obsessed with hate laws, there are none that protect me, which I think is one of the greatest <laughs> quotes of all time. And, and I, 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 I love the Smiths and Morrissey musically. I've obviously, I've completely fallen out with him because of his politics. And I think this is absolutely hilarious. Um, but the, you have to hand it to the, to the Simpsons because they do so, the song titles that the fictional Morrissey-like character does include How Late Is Then, Hamburger Hot, <laughs> Homicide, and everyone is horrid except me and possibly you. But, so I think purely because of this episode, I'm way back with The Simpsons. <laughs> okay, let's not lose sight of who the real victim is here, and it's Morrissey. Um, it's Morrissey oh yeah. my god, that uh, is amazing! Yeah, that, like, I watched The yeah. Simpsons when I was like a like a teenager and whatnot, and I watched some early you South Park and stuff. You were never a teenager. But- that is a trick. <laughs> I mean, that may well be true. But, you know, again, all of the Seth MacFarlane stuff, like Family Guy, American Dad and stuff, I've never got on with that. I'm, I think Seth MacFarlane's humour and mine are on very different poles. But just just none of them. Like, I've watched King of the Hill. I didn't like that. I just, I've never got on, I think, with any sort of animated series, apart from the cartoons when I was a kid. But, like, as an adult, I just haven't really got on with them. But as you said, like, like films are slightly different. So going slightly into movie territory here but but uh, our very own ben travis gave uh, the mitchells versus the machines five stars which is uh, a film that's come onto netflix last week and um i rolled my eyes as heavily as i've ever rolled my eyes about anything oh god he's gone full travis here we fucking go this is this is rise of skywalker slash wonder woman 84 all over again like what is happening and then and i watched it and it's fucking magnificent. Like it's a nailed-on five-star film. The jokes come quick and fast. It's super funny. It's stunning to look at. It's got heart. It's got incredible appeal across all ages. And I was like, now this is amazing. Like this, like you know, the kind of like, this is up there with Spider Verse for me. I think it's a, I think it's a masterpiece. So so I guess I'm not immune to animation completely, but I just 
you know, it took a lot for me to actually sit down and watch it because <laughs> I just kind of couldn't face it. And I wonder whether for me it's like I find the fact that it's animated a barrier to kind of getting into it. Like I find it slightly inaccessible because th mm. there's a sort of fundamental lack of realism to it because it's animated. I wonder whether that's yeah. the issue I have with but it. I think that's what it is for me. Yeah. I do think that's – yeah. An authentic yeah. – I found and it, it hard to emotionally engage with animation yeah. because they're animated characters. They're not flesh and blood <laughs> like me. And I think yeah. that's actually – what Pixar zoned in on and they toyed with that concept. They put so much emotion into their films because I think they understand that that preconception that exists. But they, I mean, they really go to town. I imagine them in a massive kind of lab and it's like, right, I'm going to press this button for like up the sadness, <laughs> this button for double the tragedy. This, it's inside out. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like I am going to manipulate your emotions to the hill. And I think that's why Pixar have been so successful because mm. their their entire intent is to put heart and soul and emotion into animation. Um obviously even Pixar doesn't move me because I'm a I'm a soulless husk of a woman. Even even the first ten minutes of up. I mean, no one. If you don't like that, you're a Cylon. I didn't say I didn't yeah. like it. I said I didn't. Okay. If it doesn't you make you cry, cry, you are officially a Cylon. Come wow. on. It's a cartoon. Wow. Oh, it's <laughs> oh my god like that's it you are actively you are one of the final five that's it yeah yeah <laughs> this is this is very topical though because invincible people do have been yes tweeting me and telling lot, me and, and telling me, us and, and me. you that we have to watch invincible it has, and it's Prime. been picked up for two more seasons as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's going ahead. So I, I was going to suggest this, that I think we, as a group, should concede that before next week's episode, we will watch the first episode of Invincible. Yes, Terry, even you. Good luck the with that. first episode of Invincible. <laughs> what is this? Now, bear in mind, bear in mind, we would have what reviewed Invincible the first time. In what fact, I lobbied. I lobbied to review Invincible the first time. But no, no, no. Boyd had to come along with his German language horror show. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we did that instead for reasons that still are a mystery to me. So... You know, we could have done, you know, a feel-good fun animation, but no, we had to have, like, haunted tenement with German misery. Can I just so say, can I just say, James, <laughs> listen, James did a little kind of dance when he said feel-good fun animation, which is amazing. <laughs> like, that's my, that's animation. my animation dance. That's my animation dance. So what I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying, before next week's show, in addition to whatever else we're watching, we should just watch the first episode of Invincible, which is the first one. Okay. And then we will reconvene and we will reassess it, since every Everyone seems to think that if I if we can make it to the end of the first episode, we will see how genius it is. Um, so, all right, there's fine. A lot, can I just say there's a lot of TV next week? But oh, that, is there? Okay. All right. Yeah. So, at <laughs> we'll some see. point in the next couple yeah. of weeks, we will definitely watch Invincible. <laughs> yeah. But it will happen. It will happen. Mark my words. It will. It will happen. Um, but on the on the subject of what we've been watching, what have we been watching over the past week? So, can we just talk about Line of Duty? Um, just because. Okay, first of all, have you seen the finale? Tara? No. Um, so Fine. So there'll oh. be no spoilers for the finale, which <laughs> everyone now listening to this will probably have seen. Yes, but um, I, so I was going to, because um, I am updating the Empire Review, because I yes. I think the show has, has, for me, gone from being a four-star to a five-star. Um, but I'm now, I'm, I am, I'm a bit in bits, because I don't want to watch Line of Duty on my laptop on my own in the middle of the day. I want to be with the country. I want to be sat in front of my giant telly that you helped pick out with the lights on, like feeling the tension crackle around the entire country. I have so enjoyed watching this with everybody else. 
Like, I have so enjoyed watching this episodically. I have so enjoyed seeing Twitter and Facebook and Instagram go into absolute, complete meltdown every single Sunday night. I love Monday mornings. I love Fridays because I don't think, oh, I'm excited (laughs) for the weekend. I think, oh my God, it's nearly Sunday and I can watch Line of Duty. This has so reinvigorated my love for traditional, linear, appointment telly, good old-fashioned British addictive telly that the entire country watches together. I just think it's such a feat um, by Jed and by that entire crew and what they've created. I just honestly, I can't stop thinking about it. It's like in my head constantly. And I am so excited to tune in with the rest of the country. And I think last week's episode, I mean, she is fucking smashing it, right? Older. Anna Maxwell, Marth, Marth, Anna Maxwell, Anna Maxwell, no. whatever. She, Anna Maxwell, Martin. Anna Maxwell, Martin. <laughs> Anna Maxwell, Martin. I just think is like you know taking mm. on on that incredible character she built out before and is just taking her to new deranged places. Somebody put this incredible thing on Twitter saying um, they like to think that her and uh, her motherland character exist in in the same universe and that she just has a really like chaotic home life but is really on top of her job. Um, which makes me laugh. But yeah, I just wanted to say, I know I talk about Line of Duty every week um, um, and I'm sure it's irritating if you're not watching it, but I just I just want us to take this moment to say what a brilliant thing that is happening every week. Yeah, yeah which is, It is lovely that you've been watching it week to week. Of course, it doesn't help us on this podcast when we want to discuss the <laughs> yeah. finale for our, our listeners, yeah. but maybe next week we'll do it. I am, maybe that's happy, a big I am thing, happy to step away and you I two think, can discuss it. No, no, no. I think no, it's no, a no. Good we'll thing, do it together. Know. We'll maybe just we'll do, do it, it next week. Because I also think... How can I put this? It, I totally agree with everything you say and I, about how brilliant it's been, and, I, and I've absolutely loved. And I've somehow I've kind of watched them in advance, but still watched them go out mm. live and, and watch the Twitter reaction. I think almost like you watch it again, and it's still brilliant watching it the second, sometimes even third time. But I think it's been such a peak. It's reached such a peak mm. of, of of it is the Avengers thing. I keep banging on about. They've brought so it's become such a densely packed thing with all these characters coming back and all these storylines being brought together and tied together. That I don't think, I wonder if there's any way at all for ending it that pleases people. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah, yeah. I did <laughs> I'm just going to say that there are so many things to because you can yeah. uh, the the way they've woven it and and pulled back this yeah. from this season, this from this season. I mean, the, the brains trust and it is a bit it is a bit like Marvel because we know that for example, Kevin Feige has this massive whiteboard and every detail is thought out and traced back. I would love to see the line of duty on and there is clearly not everything can get tackled not adequately but to everyone's satisfaction in that final episode. I yeah. have no clue at yeah. this point what is going to happen in that finale. It feels like everything is on the table. Um and I like that because I think so often mm. now you kind of figure where it's going to go and when it ended, I, I was like I can't believe it's the finale next week. I can't see how they're going to get from where we mm. are now to where we might need to be. Can I say my, my favourite meme for this was one that went around, so it just said, find someone who looks at you like Ted Hastings looks at you when you quote section 117 of the Police and Criminal <laughs> yeah. Evidence Act 1984. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yes, well done for that. He had some great <laughs> facial expressions last week in oh, that interview, did. didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yes, Line of Duty. Okay, well, we'll see if we can maybe get into that a little bit next week and a little, a little spoiler segment. Uh, what else have you been watching? Um, apart from, I very much enjoyed watching Terry on the Oscars, the live coverage oh, of the Oscars you, on boy. Sky. 
And then uh, I've watched, um, I'm now up to episode three of This Time with Alan Partridge, and it's getting funnier and funnier and funnier. And what I've realised they do they do is they kind of have they have the various VTs, like Alan um, goes, like he hangs out with SAS people in episode three, and um, amazing things happen. Uh, but they build, they kind of quite subtly build to a climax of insanity. Like, And, and so as Alan, Alan starts to lose it more and more, I think this happens in the first three episodes, and they, and they build to this crescendo of hilarity and and the ending of episode three which revolves around um cocktail taste testing is all i'll say is astonishing and incredible and yeah it's reaching some amazing peaks of comedy this series that's uh, as close as i'm ever going to get to it but thank you boys that's good to uh, good to know <sighs> Um, well, I watched the rest of Shadow and Bone. I completed Shadow and Bone, and I have to say, like, I was, I was maybe, I think, maybe a little underwhelmed last week, maybe a little bit lukewarm when we reviewed it. But it really picked up for me the last few episodes. Like when it got to the end, I was properly into it. I think it took me a while to kind of crack through and care about the characters. But by the end of it, I was really stoked, and I was like, "Oh, it's finished! I need more! I want the second season now!" Uh, I didn't maybe go quite winks on it, but not far off. Um, I think the problem full I had winks. early on is I thought, <laughs> "Yeah, I went full winks." I think, I think early on I found the characters just a little bit bland and I think it takes a while for them to develop any texture I would not say that they don't all you know ultimately clear that bar but uh but yeah it's 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 definitely worth a look I would say definitely definitely worth checking out I really enjoyed Shadow and Bone that was that was last weekend for me and it was great uh meantime I am now halfway through season five of Game of Thrones you'll be pleased to know so hard home <laughs> is coming hard home is coming very exciting <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, I just did, did the episode last night where uh, Jorah Mormont and Tyrion spend most of the episode titting about on a river, going upstream on a boat, which may seem like a waste of time in the series, but God knows in the book it's about 15 chapters of them going up a river, so uh, at least it's condensed. Uh, but I, I am also still, and I'm very glad I've got this to cling to in, in uh, the absence soon to be of Line of Duty, which is Mayor of East Town. Is there? It's my new. How many episodes are you in now? I'm watching it with the people. I'm How many episodes two. are the people through two. now? Two. Yeah. Just two. Oh, so I've seen two. I've yeah. seen two. And yeah. Do you like? I like two a lot more. I like two a lot more. Like the first one, I was a bit cold. The, the second one, I really liked. I think once Evan Peters came in, it started to. I thought pick up the pace. So I may or may not continue with Mayor of yeah. Town. But I mean, it's good, but it's also just so bleak. I know, I'm just not really it's sure. Amazing. You know, give me your shadow and bone. <laughs> No, I, I'm loving Mary. I've, I've got to Mary. I'm totally uh, with you. Yeah, I think. And I think actually the Evan Peters casting works because the, of the contrast with yeah. the, the, with the, the two of them. I think is really good. I mean, yeah, she's the, it, yeah. Occasionally, yeah. the windslip breaks because they've got you know she's meant to be like this egg and cheese sandwich eating kind of bigger yeah. bigger lady. <laughs> there's there's who, so much munching on sandwiches, <laughs> and it's like, but your face still looks like Kate Winslet's face. Do you know what I mean? Like she's yeah. still a really yeah. attractive woman. Yeah. So whenever they're trying oh, to position her as kind of this dowdy, you know, middle aged menopausal woman, I'm like, she's still got a face like Kate Winslet with cheekbones you could crack an egg on. So like, let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but I, I thought the the ending of episode two is brilliant, um, and and totally. Mm. Set, I think you have to carry on watching um, from then on. I think it's yeah. I think it's going to. I'm really. It's total Monday night treat. I agree. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to this week's listener question? And this week's listener question isn't a listener question uh, because a. 
press release dropped into my inbox at one point this week, uh, and it was from some unrelated commercial endeavour, which I'm absolutely not going to name check because I'm that kind of twat. But anyway, they had they were talking about uh, characters who had left TV shows and thus ruined them, and basically the ratings falls that had followed these things. So they did a little top ten based on research. I think they dug through the Nielsen ratings to find out what had happened. So the the sort of the character that see if you can guess who do you think was number one so the character who left a show and most affected its ratings go on terry terry's hand is up it's a podcast but sure <laughs> oh yeah also when have i ever put my hand up to be able to speak also true. Um, <laughs> okay so this isn't the the biggest loss that i think but i think this is the biggest loss for everybody else on a statistical level. Are you with me? Okay. So this yeah. isn't my opinion on who had the biggest impact, but this is who I think will have caused the biggest impact amongst the normal people. And I'm going to say, um, uh, who am I going to say? Oh, where's he gone? I'm sorry, I <laughs> build up. Um, wow. Patrick Dempsey. Derek in Grey's uh, Anatomy. Yeah. He has to be up there. Mm. He's at number nine. Oof. Ooh. At number nine, Ooh. Derek Shepard left. There was a um, 2.3% decrease in Grey's Anatomy ratings when Noel uh, McDreamy left the cast. But otherwise, it continued unabashed and is still going. Um, no, is this num- throughout history? Like throughout TV history, this list? It's throughout this press release that I'm reading, so I don't know. If- <laughs> <laughs> press release, I mean, press release covers the entirety yeah. of TV history. Sure. Okay. I'm assuming they did it the um, research properly, but I can't guarantee it. I wonder if it's Mulder leaving X-Files? Oh, interesting, mm. interesting. No, actually, he's not even mm. in the top no. ten, though. He'd certainly be one of my picks. Yeah. Uh, well, in that no. case, my final guess is Steve Carell leaving The Office. Oh, that's number two. Ooh. That's number two. No, Steve, number there was two. a 38.7 oh, okay. decrease yeah. in ratings in The American Office when Steve Carell left. I'm sure it rallied after that. But nevertheless, that was the blow. Yeah. No, number one is actually Charlie Sheen. Two and a half men, sixty-two point three percent drop in ratings when Charlie Sheen left that show. Of course, uh, at uh, number two, as we said, was Michael Scott leaving the office. Steve Carell, uh, Alison Argent leaving Teen Wolf was apparently quite uh, quite problematic <laughs> wow. for them. So you know, big loss. I think we can all agree. Uh, Emmy Rossum when she left American Shameless, there was a fifteen percent drop when she left there. Uh, Meghan Markle and Patrick J. Adams leaving Space. Suits saw a fifteen percent mm. drop as well, and as I can certainly, certainly understand Ragnar Lothbrok's departure from Vikings hit it for 8.8%. I mean, well, yeah, that was, I mean, it was a sorry state of saying. affairs when he got killed by snakes. Uh, Nina Dobrev, when she left the vampire uh, diaries, that was a big one. Uh, Cousin Matthew leaving Downton Abbey. Also, that was a 4.3% drop in Downton ratings when Cousin Matthew died in a car accident. Uh, really? I mean, kept can both you hands pres- on the describe wheel, it to that? <laughs> I will have no bad words said about Downton Boyd. Downton is superb. No, no, no I'm not. I, I, I'm the opposite. I, I, I don't believe that you can necessarily say a four percent drop in ratings of Downton is due to that character leaving. No, I think of course that's you can See, what we're getting into now, boys, yeah. is a bit philosophical. It's causation yeah. versus correlation. Well, hundred uh, percent. <laughs> but let's assume. Let's assume that it's the the former, just for the time being. Uh, the final one, number ten here, was Rick Grimes. A three point eight percent dip in Walking Dead ratings when Rick Grimes left and was, of course, in no way down to the fact that it's been going on for about 120 seasons and has got a bit boring. But I will say, when Rick Grimes, I think it's opposite, I think when Rick Grimes left The Walking Dead, it actually picked up because he dies, or doesn't die, but go, 
goes and then you get that time jump and the whole world has changed and actually i think that massively reinvigorated the walking dead after the negan sort of like uh the the savior war years so yeah i think that was good stuff in fact i was watching the walking dead this morning because i'm catching up on those extra bonus episodes which i've been slightly behind on so uh i'm plowing on towards the negan episode which i'm looking forward to but anyway anyway any others you'd like to throw in who weren't on this top 10 yes who you think i've got a list <clears throat> Let, okay, let me guess. Let me guess. You're going to say Misha Barton from the OC, aren't you? Sure. Yes. Oh God. So, are you going to say Angel from Buffy? I am going to say Rob Lowe from the West Wing, and then mm. everybody else who followed. And here's the thing with with long running series. I've got a whole section just on ER, which is you have to go through this over and over and over again. Like it's not like one yeah. person leaves and then that's it. Like the West Wing, it was like watching like somebody you know die bit by bit as various other bits yeah. dropped off. Um, and that's the thing I found hardest. But obviously Rob Lowe was the first. And because I didn't ruin the show though. Well, here's the thing, right? So I didn't I thought because of the way it was handled, I thought he was coming back. I just thought for some reason he was like off on sabbatical or something. Mm. So when it became clear to me that it and I wasn't reading, if you remember, I deliberately wasn't reading anything around it because I didn't want to know anything. So I it took me like a whole season to work out he's not coming back. And then I got really upset all over again because I thought he was... I was like, oh, is this a weird plot twist where he's going to become a senator or something? I was like, don't really get it, but he'll be back. Um, No, he won't. Well, he will. Um, So I'd say, um, yes, so Rob Lowe, but then obviously the kind of... uh, The big one for me was John Spencer, uh, who obviously sadly passed away but that was yeah a massive blow um and that literally ended the show yeah so. and that and that you really could see kind of things go back i mean in richard mm. Schiff, which we've talked about a great deal but you know once you've lost these hearts of the show it you know when i was watching that final season and thankfully they managed to obviously resurrect it with a new kind of presidential candidate and it and it, it took it elsewhere because there was a bit before it moved to that where it it felt like you know it was half a like half a person like you used to be in love with this whole person and an, an arm fell off and then a leg fell off and do you know what i mean and you're left with like a one-legged one-armed person you used to be in love this is with. painting a very vivid picture of your dating history <laughs> yeah. then um robert downey jr in ali mcbeal so he was incredible in ali mcbeal and he unfortunately had to leave the show after he was arrested um i think it's when things were found in his car boot that shouldn't have been in his car boot um i think he went into rehab and he left the show and the the whole thing careered off the off the tracks at that point you know she basically then acquired a daughter which was she'd frozen some eggs and it had accidentally become fertilized <laughs> and, and a teenage yeah. girl turned up on her doorstep and said hi mummy basically but rob the rob the rob low years were were beautiful mish barton in the oc just it was never, ever the same. Her and Ryan's relationship was, you know, I know people say Seth and Summer, but the, the real kind of tension relationship was in that re- it was in that pairing. And once she was gone, Ryan didn't really have anybody to play off. Um, no, it didn't work after that. Jason Dempsey in Criminal Minds, played by Mandy Pattinkin. So Criminal Minds is a procedural show that I am very much into. And he was the brilliant, tortured, weird genius. 
mm. when he left and he left off screen as well, which I think is unforgivable. I know. Um, that was very upsetting for me. Elliot Stabler, SVU, Christopher Maloney. Oh, God. So again, left off screen. They got into a dispute about money at the end of a season. The season ended with him having to shoot a teenage girl whose mother had been murdered and she tried to kill the guy who killed her mother and he ended up having to shoot her because she was shooting around the squad room. When the next season started, um, negotiations had fallen down. Stabler was not coming back. Um, And so they had him leave off screen. They had him never say goodbye to Liv. He didn't even clear his desk. You never saw Stabler again. Obviously, that has now changed and Stabler is back. There is a new SVU starring Stabler and there have been crossover events where he's seen Live Again, none of which have aired on British television. People keep asking me on Twitter when it is. I don't know, people. We're like a year behind the US or something awful. <laughs> but again, that that just, it took many years to get over that. Um, I've already mentioned Derek in Grey's Anatomy, McDreaming. And then on ER, uh, like, there's a list and this is like, the West Wing for me. So George Clooney is Doug Ross. I mean, you're never going to keep hold of George Clooney for that long, right? But like once you took him out... I mean, back then you could have done. He was only going off to make Peacemaker. But once you took him out, then Carol obviously didn't really have as much to do as, as that that tumultuous love affair. Can't believe you're defining Carol Hathaway by her relationship Why? with well, Doug Ross. It's true what with, kind of feminist it's are true you? It's true within that show. Can you remember the pilot when she took an overdose yeah. because yeah. he was so yeah. horrible to her? She was supposed to die in that. Um, but obviously she then leaves to go and be with him eventually. Um so, also, Gloria Rubin, who played Jeannie, Eric LaSalle, who played Benton, yes. Anthony Edwards, who played Mark, mm. Greg, Greg Pratt, for me, was the last big loss, Mackay Pfeiffer. So, he, that was the one I'd, it's the same, um, with any of these shows, there's like a crop of, of cast, and then they move on, you get a crop of new people. And there's always one or two who really stand out, and Greg Pratt, for me, was the last of the great ER actors and when he left and i've talked about this scene many times on this podcast where he knows what's happening to him and the single tear rolls down his cheeks and then his body gets wheeled through um the er to go and have his organs transplanted upstairs it's one of the most devastating er death scenes ever and there are several devastating yeah ER don't get me started on lucy knight um oh my god and that (laughs) is my list I will say, ER-wise, I, I think like Carter's probably the biggest one because he lasted eleven seasons. He was the last member of the original cast yeah, to go. It's about time. Like that was brutal. Like when he left, that's <laughs> and bear in mind because he'd had that whole art with Tandy Newton mm. in it. Like that was really good stuff. I, I when I honestly, I stopped watching once Carter left. Like that was that was. Uh, that was it. I did go back and watch the final episode, but I stopped watching regularly when Carter left. Yeah, I mean, I I once anymore, he but... was gone, what was the point? But he did hang around for a very long time. He did for a very long time. Whereas Benton, like when Benton left, I nearly stopped watching because Benton was just brilliant, mm. like Eric LaSalle. So such a bell mm. and he did it so well. Yeah, ER, ER had its, uh, certainly had its moments. Boyd, any you'd like to add to Terry's quite comprehensive list there? That was pretty comprehensive, yeah. I'd add um, Den and Ange when they left EastEnders. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, here we go. Now we're talking. <laughs> that was def- <sighs> yeah, never the same. Never the same. I mean, I that you were going to say, so Boyd. I was convinced you were going to say, well, obviously, Richard Dean Anderson when he left Stargate SG1. <laughs> well, and that. Um, no, American ones, Will Gardner um, leaving yeah, the, good f- good wife. the good wife. Um, yeah, and in a really loved- brutal way. 
Yeah, I mean, this uh, there's two examples of this. One, so brilliant, brilliant scenes and episodes. That episode of of, of the Good Wife is one of the greatest episodes of the series, yeah. um, and it was a brilliant bit of acting and directing um, that he's shot in the in the courtroom, and it was an absolutely incredible shock moment. But it did detract, for, I think, from from that series, and, I, and it's I mean, it didn't it didn't ruin it, which I think is the question. Is that the question? <laughs> did it ruin the series? But it just slightly lowered the, my interest level. I did carry on watching it, but but and and, and similarly, uh, Cal Penn when he left House, uh, he played mm. Cutler in House. Um, Doctor House is one of Doctor House's gang. Yeah, and he left in. The, but there was a brilliant episode. He took his own life, and the episode in which which House is investigating it and comes to the conclusion that you can't necessarily explain why someone takes their own life. There's no simple explanation of it. Was an amazing um, episode. But I loved his character. I loved Cal Penn in it. I loved Cutner. And he went, he left House to join Barack Obama's administration in the White House, Definitely. which is also the best excuse for <laughs> ever to leave a TV series by an actor. Um, so that was good. Um, we've already mentioned uh, Mulder leaving the X-Files. Mm. Was, was terrible. He kind of left in a really weird way, didn't he? He had a contract dispute, I remember, with Fox. And so they kind of, he was in like half a season, yeah. season and then and they then brought Robert in that boring Patrick character. Came in. Robert Patrick came in, who was a bit boring. And then Scully um, got sidelined for Annabeth Gish. Like, it was all right. a bit, like, yeah. It was so messy. Oh, it was awful. Like, just, when you think about creative decisions to deal with the actors <laughs> leaving, just either end it, yeah. just end it, you know. And then, you know, eventually, of course, they all came back anyway in, yeah. the, in, the, in the questionable reboot, <laughs> relaunch of the Exiles. But him leaving that was, was terrible. Um, and I have to say... Um, Steve Carell leaving the the American Office was a big yeah. was a big loss. It was a huge yeah. loss. Yeah, but still, there were great episodes of The Office after that after he left. But I mean, it wasn't the same. No, it, it often isn't, isn't it? Like when you when you leave. Like I often thought, like when Robert Sheehan left Misfits. Like Joe Gilgan's great, but that show was yeah. not the same in the kind of post Sheehan years. Um, I can't think of anything. Anyone else that we haven't really covered? To be honest, <laughs> we've uh, we've talked about pretty much everyone. Oh, uh, Yvette Nicole Brown and Donald Glover when they left Community as well. That never really recovered from that. Anyway, that is an answer to a question that no one asked. But if you yourself would like to ask a question, or, I don't know, send me a press release that I won't credit to you, then feel free to do so via Twitter DM at PilotTVPod. Such a professional. <laughs> Time now for this week's guest. Uh, Jupiter's Legacy lands on Netflix this Friday and sees family troubles among superheroes as a generation of heroes prepare to pass the super baton to their super kids, many of whom are feckless layabouts. Uh, Josh Dumel takes the lead in this show as Sheldon Sampson, a.k.a. The Utopian, and I Zoomed with him in his kitchen a few days ago to hear all about it. Hello, Josh. Thank you for coming on and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast. Jupiter's Legacy obviously lands on Netflix this week. And, uh, and Mark Miller summed up this show as, as, as what if Superman and Wonder Woman had problem children? Uh, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty accurate. Uh, had they sort of dared go into the, you know, the, the psychology or the, or the actual intimate lives behind the, the, the costumes. And I think that's what Mark Millar did a beautiful job of was, was, you know, examining what it would be like to actually have these sorts of powers and mm. what are the repercussions of that, especially after having been these people for so long. Uh, that's what really drew me to this story was not the superhero stuff as much as the family dynamics that, that, that 
are, are a result of being these people. I think you also called it, the, what if the Incredibles were raising the Kardashians, which again is perhaps slightly tongue in cheek, but I totally get what you're saying. Like, yeah. I, I guess there've been a lot of attempts to ground superheroes kind of over the years, you know, uh, mainly by making them, I guess, darker and grittier. What I kind of like about this is it makes superheroes more relatable using the little things, like the mundane things, uh, you know, like yeah. by trying to raise your kids and making parenting mistakes. It's like the humanity of them. Do you think that's, yeah. that's kind of the core of it? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, there have been, you know, we've seen a lot of different variations of the superhero. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen an over the hill sort of tired and depressed superhero, which is who <laughs> I'm playing. Uh, somebody who who seeks counseling to sort of figure out, you know, why he can fly around the world in 12 seconds and shoot laser beams from his eyeballs, but he can't connect with his 20 year old daughter. Yeah. You know, that's something I think people with kids especially can relate to. Yeah, because with a lot of these things, you know, I mean, I've not stopped a great many bank robberies in my time, but uh, I think everyone's <laughs> had that thing, which is like, why can't I get this child to listen to me? You know, it's it's, yeah. it's the simple things that people, things people, you know, really relate to. Right. The generational divide, I guess, is 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 at the heart of this as well. You know, so, so it's a second generation of heroes and villains, I guess, as well, uh, who have very different ideals to their parents. And I guess on the one hand, the kids don't, sort of shoulder the weight of responsibility maybe the same way the parents do but there's maybe a sense also that Sheldon in particular is sort of very anchored in the past and is maybe a little unable to change do you think yeah I think that there's a lot uh, there's a lot of parallels that you can draw from what's actually going on in the world and what what he's sort of going through um what I love about this story is that there's a it's a beautiful sort of origin story that we sort of keep flashing back to Mm. and how these people became who they are. So you understand throughout the, 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 the scope of this show where they came from and what they had to do to get there. Yeah. And I think, and I think, you know, Sheldon in particular feels very committed to what they were meant to do and what these powers were meant for. Mm. And I think that, I think that, you know, he, he really, his, his, his intentions are good. His intentions are, to serve that, you know, this code is meant not to lead, not to be in politics, not to kill. And yes, he is very rigid in his beliefs and stubborn and, and egomaniacal in some ways, but I think his intentions really are good. And he, he, they're, they're, they're here to serve. They're here to be of service to the people. And, you know, I, 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 I try to, I, I can't tell you, James, how many conversations I've had with the producers about this code. Like, mm. I don't understand how somebody could be this rigid about one thing. There's always an exception to the rule, at least in my, the way I see things, yeah. um, you know, you don't kill. Well, that's great. I mean, I don't want to kill anybody either, but if somebody's trying to kill my son, I'm going to take them out first, <laughs> you know, but, but not with Sheldon. Part mm. of me thinks that he has some kind of a death wish. You know, this is a bit of sins of the father in, in a sense that the cycle continues and, and he saw what his dad did in front of his very eyes. In some way, I feel like he's manifesting that himself. Mm. You know, like when, 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 when Brandon saves him on that hilltop, when he was about to die, he still reprimands his own son for doing that. When it's like his son was saving your life, but he would have rather died that day than to be, than to break the code. Yeah. Uh, I do think that there's, there's also a lot of, you know, it is cyclical, the, the crash. He wrote this in 2012. Uh, but it is even current today and it was current back in 29. And I do think that there's something that we can learn from this and that there's, 
you know, there, there's a code, there's an old guard, if you will, of the way things have always kind of run in the world mm. and things are changing and people are having to pay attention and listen and see people for the first time, maybe. And I think that's a good thing. Um, but I just want to make sure that the intentions are the same that the Sheldon's were, you know, if we're comparing the two, you know, the, I'm all for change. If those intentions are for, for, for better. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The effect it has on Sheldon when he realizes public support might not necessarily be with him, like really shakes the core of his beliefs. Yeah. Because for so long, he's kind of been the final say, like people just followed him. People believed in him. And now for the first time, they don't believe in him. Mm. They think that, you know, they don't believe, think this code is antiquated. They, they, we need to start seeing things differently. And, it forces him to sort of reflect on that and, 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 and not only what the public thinks, but what his own family thinks. This guy for 90 years has been this dude, has been the guy. And as he looks back on his life after having, you know, gained these powers, yes, he went out, he served the people, he did a lot of good, but he's starting to think, did we affect change? Did we really do, did we yeah. really do what we set out to and was I a good father? You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, and I look this, this is a cautionary tale for me in a lot of ways. I look at this and I think about Sheldon and I'm like, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an ambitious guy. I, I try to achieve. I've always been somebody who goes out and tries to achieve. But at the end of the day, if you don't connect with your kids mm. and you don't have that, that's really what it's all about. In my opinion, you have to sometimes put work aside and make sure that your 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 everything at home is okay. And I think that he's realizing that he didn't do that very yeah. well. And I think one of his kids calls him out on that, don't they? They say, you know, you are the cape. The cape is the real you because he puts his yeah. role as a hero before his role as a husband, before his role as a father and as, you know, like a man. Yeah. And it's and it's it's a fascinating examination of this whole genre in a, mm. in a weird way because we all we do see them as the people who will come save the day you know when things go terribly wrong and you know the idea that we actually get inside you know the halls of the house that they live in and, and realize that they have some of the same problems we all have um it, it's just fascinating to me that this guy can do all these things and he just can't even connect with his 20 year old daughter you know he's powerless when it comes to his daughter i love the scene where he's trying to get them to say grace around the the dinner table and he's like he can't even kind of get his family to sit still for five minutes and have a conversation it's just the expression yeah. like the exasperation yeah. and i think that's absolutely universal yeah, yeah there's something self-righteous about him for sure but again i always go back to what is the intention his intentions are good yeah his intentions are in the right place i believe uh but you know if you do, if you don't change with the times you get passed by and i think that that's what he's starting to see happen the, the kind of the crux of this the core what the issue that he has with with his son in this paragon is that whole fundamental like heroes don't kill like that that's his thing and i, I always think yeah. that's quite interesting because of you know kind of a topical debate for like Zack snyder's dc movies where you've got a slightly darker take on batman and superman and classically those are two characters who in comics never ever kill and that's their defining characteristics whereas that's not the case in the movies and a lot of the justification for that has been you know it's a different time it's a different world we live in and i guess that's the thing that sheldon's dealing with you know you know because i don't think it's hard to argue that batman's life wouldn't have been a lot easier if he just killed the joker on day one do you know what i mean yeah right true and 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 that is kind of the easy way out and sheldon's way of thinking is that there's always another way yeah um but you know, he also believes that if 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 we start going down this path, it becomes a slippery slope. And mm. next thing you know, we have, we're in the middle of a bloodbath. And and what is the line? And so he is that moral center, but is that moral center not inclusive of everyone else's beliefs and ideas? And I think that we're kind of going through that right now. I mean, there is 
my moral center isn't somebody else's moral center. Mm-hmm. And I think that he's realizing that, you know, his way isn't isn't the final say. He's that classic kind of uh, flawed hero, isn't he? Like he's like your Ned Stark or your Javert from Les Mis, like the kind of guy who cannot bend and ultimately ends up breaking as a result of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And we're kind of seeing a man like this break. And I love the idea that he's a this all-powerful dude who has to go seek counseling from one of the people that he put in the supermax <laughs> yeah. prison many years ago because he's the only guy that he can talk to. He's a lonely, he's a lonely dude. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, he's a lonely, regretful dude who, who looks, who's looking back in his life and realizing that he didn't affect the change that he hoped for. Mm. And there's something sad about it. there's some, what I love about this story too, is it feels I don't want to compare it to Shakespeare anyway, but it has a Shakespearean sort of modern tragedy feel oh, yeah, to it. And definitely. I, I think by the, by the end of these eight episodes, people will see where it's headed mm. and it's, it gets dark. And I love that, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's who can you trust? If you can't trust the people that are closest to you, you know, it, 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 it can be a lonely world. Yeah. And I think that that's, Kind of where he's finding himself. And it's interesting you mentioned the fact that we are obviously we're joining these guys like nearly a century after they got their powers. And the point yeah. is that all they've done is maintain the status quo. Like it's been 90 odd years and it just there's still crime. You know, America's still got problems that like they haven't had a meaningful impact on the world in that time. So I guess the fact is yeah. like, the, you know, the code, which makes absolute sense, like don't govern, don't get involved in politics, lest you end up trying to rule the world. It isn't working. Yeah. So I guess something's got to give. So your sympathy, I guess, in many ways is, is very much with the the kids because they're like, this isn't working. We need to try something new. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I go back to the same thing. It's like, okay, there's a line in the, in the show that says, you know, evil just isn't black and white anymore. It's, mm. it's somewhere in the gray. And when you think about, you know, Sheldon is very black and white. Uh, there's right and there's wrong uh, to his detriment. It reminds me of major league baseball or, <laughs> or some religions. I won't name which ones, but I feel like they're, they're so, if you, if you're so rigid, you yeah. break. And, and, it, and his intentions, like I said, are good. And, and you find that these people that are, that are, screaming for change in the show their intentions maybe aren't as good as as as, as we would hope you mentioned the uh the origin story that you guys have in this because it is it's a split narrative isn't it we have the present day we have the family issues and the mystery that's involving the present day and we flash back to kind of prohibition era sort of 1930 uh which is the origin of how they get their their powers and it's a very different i think origin story to the kind of stuff that we often see in superhero shows uh in that it is very grounded in that kind of golden age of comic books it feels very king kong you know it's got a real texture to it like what what was all that stuff like to shoot yeah i loved all that i mean that stuff to me was my favorite i mean i love doing the modern stuff too because i got to play the weight of this dude and the, yeah. the pressures of all these years of having this responsibility but that earlier stuff the origin story is what i think people are really going to be able to it's what grounds this thing so you mm. know where we came from and what we struggled with to get there and uh for me as an actor, it was like a dream come true. I get to play the same guy 90 years apart. So it's like playing two different dudes all together. Yeah. And, and so he's young, naive, sort of bright eyed and bushy tailed, adventurous, ambitious young man who witnesses his father's death and slowly loses his mind. He gives this mental psychological breakdown along the way, but still has this fortitude to, to follow these visions, uh, which leads them to this island, which ultimately gives them these powers. Um, that to me was so much fun to play because it had such grit. It would, they did it. I thought they did a beautiful job of making it feel like it was the dirty thirties. Yeah. And, and, and it was just a lot of fun to, to sort of 
do that. I've never done anything like that. So it was it was a lot of fun. There are quite a few shows at the moment that that kind of deconstruct the superhero genre. I'm thinking, you know, like The Boys or The Umbrella Academy, even Invincible also on Netflix. Uh, but I guess yeah. this one goes about it in a slightly different way. Like it, it feels like a very contemporary take on that sort of genre. I mean, is, would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Uh, especially in the modern stuff, I feel mm. like it, it deals with it deals with themes that we're dealing with outside of any kind of superhero stuff. Yeah, which is cool. Uh, so it feels very current. It feels like these kids are dealing with stuff that you know kids now are dealing with. Yet we go back in the '30s, and and weirdly, you know, there's the, there's these cycles that happen. You know. I keep thinking, and I and I didn't really dawn on me until today, but I thought they did a beautiful job of marrying the old with the new, like the like the old sort of period stuff with the new stuff. There's there's some connective tissue there. Yeah. That, honestly, I didn't even see, and I'm not sure they even saw until they got in the editing room. And it was beautiful the way they were able to connect. I'll take my character for example. How he was, you know, how he witnessed his father. Uh, the jump off the building after yeah. the market cracks in 29 and which led him into this crazy sort of m- mental breakdown, which never really left him. And you can even see that 90 years later, you can still see that that still lingers there mm. and you can still see that he wears that. And he, 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 in a weird way, almost is manifesting the same thing his father did, even though he, he, he's, he's absolutely pissed off at his father for ever doing that in front of him in the first place he weirdly is kind of doing the same thing in front of his own son. You know, mm-hmm. he, he reprimands his son for saving his life. Well, what's the alternative? You die, you die right in front of me. Just like you're just like your father did to you. you know, it's, it's a weird sort of self-fulfilling uh, fantasy in a way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. There's something there's it's like a death wish. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's cyclical, isn't it? It's, uh, you yeah. know, it makes perfect sense. And in, in this case, I guess the generation gap, it's not like, you know, baby boomers and Gen Zers. I mean, it's a significant gap, like, you know, because yeah. Sheldon's pretty long lived. Yeah, yeah. Apparently these these superpowers age them at a much slower rate than they normally would. Uh, but but yeah, he's he's been around a while and he's seen a lot. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It was a really fun, you know, I put this stuff on, I, I'd go in there in the morning, you know, dressed like a normal dude. We'd go into rehearsal. I'd come out, we'd start putting the the prosthetics and the beard and the wig. And then I put the suit on and the cape and the whole thing. And it just commands <laughs> attention walking into a, it's, it's much different me walking into the room as me. And then me walking in as this guy, uh, especially for people who haven't seen it. They're like, Whoa. Um, and there's something empowering about that. Um, but but at the same time, he he isn't what he appears to be. He's not the, in his prime anymore. He's a guy who's who's trying to pass this thing on and trying to, you know, sustain this legacy through his children. Uh, his son isn't living up and his daughter wants nothing to do with it. And he's and, and it's like this, he's like a shell of who he used to be. Yeah. And that and that is what was so fun to play because I, I could feel it as soon as I put this stuff on. I felt like this world weary old veteran who was sore and tired and and had enough yet he keeps he keeps marching forward um because he knows what's at stake if he doesn't i think you've just summed up how we all feel during the pandemic so that's uh that's a nice <laughs> exactly. analogy thanks so much josh i really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show all right james thanks a lot brother 
That was Josh Dumel, and time now for this week's news. Where shall we begin this week? Uh, so I just wanted to mention something as we start because it concerns uh, somebody who was a guest on the show last week. We also reviewed their show on the same episode. So as we record this on Friday morning, the 30th of April, there was a report last night in the Guardian newspaper by uh, two reporters, Siren Kalen and Lucy Osborne, that was um, reporting a series of, of quite serious allegations against Noel Clark. Um, Boyd obviously interviewed him last week. Uh, we reviewed view, Viewpoint. Obviously, both of those things happened before this report was published. It is an incredibly serious uh, report of allegations from 20 women, uh, which basically cover groping, harassment and bullying, which is how The Guardian um, states it. Now, we should say um, for legal reasons, but also, you know, in in the kind of spirit, I suppose, of, of fairness that... Noel has, through his lawyers, has categorically denied allegations from all 20 women. Um, he has been suspended by BAFTA. Uh, his award has also been suspended, which is he won the contribution to cinema. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's an incredibly upsetting piece of journalism. I read it last night. I was uh, really quite upset by what I read by the details of, of all these women's accounts. And, you know, we aren't privy to exactly what was said. We aren't privy to there may be more reports that haven't actually been reported yet. Obviously, there is a certain level of proof that has to be established in corroboration before these reports can ever be published in a newspaper. And it actually, if you go through the Guardian piece, there is every single account has a has a corroboration. Um, attached to it and also a response from um, Noel Clark's lawyers. As I say, I found it incredibly distressing to read and I would like to say that here at, at Pilot we believe women and I would like to say solidarity with those women who have felt able to come forward and share their stories Um and, you know, that there isn't much more we know at this point. Um, there hasn't been a more formal response directly from Noel that we've seen. Um, and there may be more reports after this, or there may be a more formal response directly from him. But the Guardian piece is very robust, is um, very, very, very detailed, goes across a number of years, a number of productions, um, and it makes for very, very upsetting reading yeah it's a it's a very difficult read it's also worth noting that our interview with noel clark which ran in last week's episode uh, has been removed as a result of this as well uh, but something we should talk about this week also is the tv bafta nominations came out boyd who is a bafta juror is responsible for everything in here you don't agree with isn't that right boyd thanks um, I, was only, I was only a juror on the must-see TV moment, jury. Thank you very much. Let's get straight into that, because clearly that's the most important part of the BAFTA nominations this year. So Boyd's must-see moments, I'm holding Boyd fully responsible, include... Thanks. Lady Whistledown is revealed in Bridgerton. Diversity on Britain's Got Talent. Grey kills Chantel, whoever the fuck that is, in EastEnders. Uh, 
Reactions to Boris Johnson's news conference on Gogglebox. Genuinely genius. Uh, And cook, eat, repeat, me... Crow Wave on oh, no, oh I don't know what I'm loving like this. <laughs> I am loving this. Yes. <laughs> this could be a podcast moment to rival the TV moment. You saying, you trying to pronounce. Um, what is Nigella Wave? Is microwave? Like, what microwave. Is oh my God. Do you, do you not know this? Uh, no, this no, I know what you're talking about. This is brilliant. This is absolute dream. This is a dream come true. Yeah. Micro Wave. <laughs> okay. And in sharp contrast, <laughs> Luke, sharp Skywalker. contrast Luke Skywalker appearing on The Mandalorian. Wow. See, we've covered all the bases on that shortlist haven't yeah. we but i love the fact that you don't know the fucking moment of moments when nigella lawson was mashing some potatoes on cook eat repeat on bbc2 and said right i'm just going to put them in the microwave her pronunciation of microwave and social media exploded like, was what she, the fuck she, is she, she talking was being about? comedic presumably when she said it she was kind being comedic but some yeah. people kind didn't of. think kind <laughs> of was, kind was, of yeah some people were like is she serious? I watched the it. Li- I was watching it live. I got a bit of it in lockdown. I enjoyed watching Nigella. It gave me some kind of comfort. Yeah. And I was watching it, and and obviously, you know, she's a very well-to-do lady. She's it's fair to say upper middle class. And there is there it was. I was out as you go. I'm just gonna pop these in the microwave. And I just turned to Daniel, my boyfriend, and was like. Did she fucking just try and make the microwave sound French? <laughs> it was brilliant. And then I looked on Twitter and as Boyd said, it was a gif and a meme kind of instantly. It was absolutely brilliant. But I I wanted to ask you, Boyd, I really loved seeing the diversity mm. moment in there because as we know, there were yeah. um, this was in response to Black Lives Matter and the killing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. And there were uh, like a record number of complaints to ITV about, about them tackling that and and ITV stood their ground and put out a very robust statement in support of, yeah. of diversity was that kind of a dead cert for going on the on the shortlist um i would yeah i think i think it's safe to say it was yeah i think it's it's it yeah it was such an incredible moment yeah um and i was really thrilled th- thrilled to have it on the list yeah and i, th- I think it had to be it was, it's such a it was a proper and i think it was one of those examples where to to complain now about a tv show you know to ofcom has become such a thing and if and if mm. you know 100 people complain about a show it becomes a big story in the papers and, the, and it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling thing that keeps going 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 and i think the fact that ITV ignored that and backed that moment and you know it, it was on their, one of their biggest shows primetime Saturday night it was just an inc- absolutely extraordinary extraordinary, extraordinary. Live, powerful TV moment mm. yeah, ITV's coverage of the storming of the Capitol building was absolutely extraordinary as well that's true yeah yeah, yeah. which would That'll be next year. That could be next year. That might be next actually news. So news, just to say, actually, news, we don't include news. So it's all kind of, because otherwise it could be like any major moment in the news. If Mikro Wave made this year, did uh, Nadine Coyle's Flyer make make that year? Which was what, 2018? Uh, I don't don't think it did off the top of my head. No, I think this is a pretty unique moment. Like um, uh, Nigella Lawson trying to make a humble microwave sound dead posh and continental. (laughs) He's not quite the same as just taking a piss out of an Irish woman for the way she speaks, right? (laughs) That's true. That is true. Okay, there's a distinction there. genuinely the way she talks. That's correct. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I wanted... I wanted who the hell is that oh, to be yeah. in last oh. yes. I was I was but I was outvoted, yeah. Oh, I was really? outvoted. I was devastated. How yeah, I didn't make it. I oh, knows. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm presumably you're referring to Terry doing that yeah. rather than yeah, the yeah, actual yeah. Oh, 
Steve Coogan mom. Yeah. Oh, God. I'd have voted with you, boy, Dave. <laughs> we know, should, of thanks. course, talk about the, uh, the nominees. So Small Axe uh, stormed it with 15 nominations, despite being, you know, films. And uh, The Crown <laughs> got... Uh, <laughs> The Crown got 10 nominations. I May Destroy You got eight. Normal People got seven. Sex Education got six. What did you think were the big upsets? Well, there was one big upset that I everybody was talking about, which was David Tennant not being shortlisted mm. for Death as, as lead actor. Um, but I think, do you know what? I have to say, looking at these shortlists, they are one of the best set of shortlists I've seen for an awards recently. And mm. when you think about how strong telly is, like I was looking at the lead actress category, right? Billy Piper for I Hate oh, Susie. Incredible. Daisy Edgar-Jones for Normal People. Hayley Squires for Adult Material. Jodie Comer for Killing Eve. Letitia Wright for Small Acts. And Michaela Cole for I May Destroy You. Any one of those women could be winners. They is such mm. a strong year for film. We know how good for film, for telly. We know how strong telly is at the moment. We know how strong British telly is at the moment. I think making these shortlists is a bit of a thankless task because somebody is always going to be unhappy um, with your... There has to be a shortlist. But if we look at the actor category, who would you... They have knocked out for David Tennant. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, tricky, I think the surprise it? entry. I, I agree with you. I think the actress category is unbelievable. I mean, how do you pick one of that? And that's incredible. without Olivia Colman, Gillian Anderson, yeah. Emma Corrin. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Cause there was some. Yeah. There was a bit. Of, and there was a bit of uh, the, the women of the crown didn't didn't get nominated. But look at that incredible that that group of women is insane. Yeah, yeah. But in the actor category, you got John Boyega, Joshua for Small Axe, Josh O'Connor for The Crown, Papa Essiade if I may destroy you, brilliant. Paul Meskel for normal people, yes. amazing. Sean Parks for Small Axe. I think the surprise is well leads the for Baghdad Central. And Baghdad mm. Central mm. got quite a few nominations, which people were surprised about. The expense possibly of Des. Like Des didn't get I don't think any no, nominations. No. Quiz, the the um the millionaire got one mm. for my Michael Sheen's supporting character, his performance as Chris Tarrant, which was amazing. So I think the surprise is Baghdad Central, mm. I would say. And I think it is I think it is uh, pretty amazing that David Tennant. I thought he was nailed on to get nominated. I have to say, and I thought yeah. Des was pretty nailed on to get quite a few nominations. So that yeah. is that's one of those things. But you know, the thing about BAFTA, though, I always remind people is because I have been a jurist on on various categories down the years. You've, you're you're literally just allowed to discuss one episode of every series. What? So the yeah, the producers uh, pick one episode. And you're not allowed to discuss the whole thing, right? Uh, it's surprising. That doesn't but make that any sense. That is the way it works. But but what's the, what's the th the reason they do that is because obviously like you know a show like EastEnders is on every week or a show that's uh, ten episodes they can't guarantee you have to watch for the for the longest you fair. have to watch literally ten fifth you can't guarantee that everyone's going to watch every single episode of every mm. show so the only way to make it absolutely fair is to limit the discussion to the one episode you're all meant to watch and you can't even refer to the rest of the series in a jury it's against the rules so it does I think that makes for certain unusual situations and I would say Baghdad Central I think did we review it on the podcast we I did, think we yeah. did yeah. the opening episode of Baghdad Central is really really good mm. right now I, I got I, I was slightly disappointed with the rest of it but as an opening episode it was really really good powerful powerful and effective and I think that that is a, one explanation of it possibly not getting you know getting more nominations than than we expected and why certain things don't get nominated I think also Des I think I wonder if there's a slight ickiness about the yeah. subject matter, you know, yeah. he's, a, he's 
playing yeah. a serial killer um and whether there's a True, little yeah. bit of of resistance to that but th- that mm. definitely puts it in a different context knowing you're only looking at one episode and i suppose it makes sense doesn't it it's i understand fair. the logistic aspect of it but i also feel a bit like that's not judging these shows that's i mean it's judging an episode you cannot judge a show from one episode i mean the fact that we do that yeah. <laughs> many weeks is neither here nor there yeah but you know what yeah. I mean? Like you can't you can't just take one episode of line of duty and fully appreciate wow. the show wow. or its performances from yeah. one episode because which show do you pick like you can't but how would you, you can't do it give otherwise equal, well, make them i mean make them fucking watch them all <laughs> right i mean you can't can you You take over your whole you, life i mean i mean frankly boy, you, duty, you do <laughs> all right the line of duty not is a very interesting example because it has been under absolutely underappreciated i think in in awards generally sophie petzel was making this point on twitter this morning i think that huge big popular success shows like line yeah. of duty haven't had that many bafta nominations and it is and and it is an issue i do think it's an issue and it may also be part of this whole process yeah mm. yeah but it is interesting it is, it is difficult right because I get that that is a way that seems fair, most fair, because otherwise, boy, you'd be, but you would still, you still must judge on the entire season because you've seen it. You can't take though that knowledge out of your head. Sure, yeah, sure, of course, absolutely, hundred percent, yeah. But it's just the fact that you're not allowed to to mention it, yeah. And if you do mention it, you're 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 well and truly smacked down as <laughs> breaking the rules. But, it's but it's I, really interesting. I, I I disapprove. But the, I know, but the but. But to Terry's point, the 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 nom- you know there are so many, it is an amazing reflection of how much great TV there was. I have to say, yeah. and um, you know I may so destroy you, small acts. I mean adult material, normal people. I hate Susie. Just mm. all, all of them, incredible, really. And the Crown, you know, yeah, it, it is it is unbelievable. And we won't go through all of the nominees because you know we will die here if we do that. But uh, some of the big ones for drama series, the four. Why only four? Why are there only four, Boyd? That's a good question. I don't know. Gangs of London, I Hate Susie, Save Me Two, The Crown. I think there are four in every category. All, all of the sorry, all of the um, show categories. Oh yeah, like no, drama I know. Series. I'm just I'm just curious as to why there's only oh, I four. See. Like I feel like if you can have more performance, why can't you have more? Given They've the amount expanded. of shows, yeah. They've expanded performances to six yeah. nominees yeah. and kept just four. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I feel like yeah. six would make sense for the individual <laughs> categories. So dramas, as we said, Gangs of London, I Hate Sushi, Save Me to The Crown. Single drama, Anthony, BBW, Sitting in Limbo, The Windermere Children. Miniseries, Adult Material, I May Destroy You, Normal People, Small Acts. Uh, soap and Continuing Drama, I'm Skipping on General Principle. Uh, entertainment Program, same. <laughs> uh, scripted Comedy, Ghosts, Inside Number Nine, Man Like Mobeen, This country and all of the uh well a lot of the other characters are ones that i'm going to be snooty about so i'm just going to ignore them yeah i mean it felt like it's they felt properly diverse and a real reflection actually of the incredible diversity of performance we're we've, we're seeing on telly um just i mean even the supporting i was just looking at the supporting actress category you know helena bonham carter mm. leila farsad who absolutely smashed it in i hate susie Brilliant. and sophie okinay don't like yeah. it, it's yes the level that of was talent. an exceptional episode of criminal yeah mm. the level of talent in these yeah. categories i just think it's it it is an incredible, as Boyd says, an incredible reflection on what insanely good TV has been put out over the last can I, year. Can I just mention the one, the one award, the most poignant thing is the is um, in uh, male performance yeah. in a comedy program, Paul Ritter for Friday Night Dinner, um, and this is his first ever BAFTA nomination in any for anything, 
Um, obviously died recently. So awful. Yeah. Such a brilliant guy. Such a brilliant performance of Friday Night Dinner. And how sad that he didn't get to see that he got nominated for this because that what that's an absolutely brilliant thing. After six series, you know, he gets nominated in, after the final series. And remember, this was not. This is not uh, in in response to that. This this jury would have happened. You know. Weeks, months ago, that you know he would have got on the shortlist, yeah. um, and, and that yeah, just incredibly poignant. Really, also got to see Shuti Gatwa in that uh, category yeah. for Sex Education, and they had uh, and in in the female performance of the comedy had uh, Amy Lou Wood for Sex Education and Emma Mackey for it as well. So yeah. Well, that was the BAFTAs. To be honest, there isn't a lot of other TV news this week. You, uh, excellent Yay. you on Netflix. Not you, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you on Netflix has finally wrapped production somewhat late and will be airing later this year. As we know, that would have aired, I would have thought, in uh, Christmas 2020 if it had been on schedule. But, you know, pandemics. Uh, there's been a trailer for Sweet Tooth, which is the curious show on Netflix about a human-deer hybrid, which is based on the DC comic book, uh, which I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the comic book. I've no, I'm, I'm curious about the TV series. It was an interesting trailer. There was a teaser for Dexter, the Dexter revival as well, where you got to see Michael C. Hall uh, as Dexter. But beyond that, I don't think there's actually been an awful lot. Boy, is there anything else that you've there's seen one, you'd like to mention? The one really good, really interesting bit of news this, that broke this morning. Um, ITV announced they're making a four-part drama about the People versus the Post Office scandal. Oh, yeah. oh this really? Incredible. Yeah. The, you know, I, I, the more when I read anything about that, this story, it makes me so mm. miserable and depressed. The, the, yeah. the, the, the way the Post Office ruined the lives of these people um, is just incredible. So it's, so I think it's, you know, it's really good news that ITV's commissioned a drama written by um, Gwyneth Hughes, who wrote Honor recently, and Vanessa mm. Fair, she's a really good writer. Um, they haven't announced any casting or anything, but I just think, yeah, you know, this story, the more we know about this story, um, the, the better it is. Yeah. Well, that is it then for news, and we move on now to this week's reviews. Uh, and first up, we have season two of Mythic Quest, a show that we criminally failed to review when it debuted around the launch of Apple TV in 2019. No longer Raven's Banquet. This is now about the game's second expansion uh, in this comedy about the developers of a popular MMORPG. That's massively multiplayer online role-playing game, Terry. We had a, a little interstitial episode recently as well. And also, I will say, these guys did one of the best remote pandemic Zoom episodes I've seen as well, which is loads of fun. Uh, Boydie, were you wowed? So that's a that's a World of Warcraft gag. Uh, by this one, it's interesting this one because um, uh, I hadn't. I, I think I watched one episode for series one when it came mm. along, the very first episode, and was I think I was underwhelmed. I didn't think it was that amazing. I mean, it's, it felt like a kind of fairly standard workplace sitcom, really, um, with comparisons to The Office, both the US and American versions, and also quite a lot of Silicon Valley in terms of the nerdy aspect of it. The fact that it's a games development company um, and a lot of it, there's a lot of kind of geeky, nerdy stuff to do with, you know, playing games and all of that and the and the, and the graphics of that. Um, and it's created by, um, you know, three of the people um, behind It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is a show which I always feel very guilty that I've never got into when it's a lot of people's obsession. People are obsessed with that show and, and you know, it's been going on for an extraordinary number of years. Um so it's kind of got all the elements there for a show that I should like. F. Murray Abraham's in it. I mean, you know, incredible. 
so then I came back and watched the, this first. I watched the first couple of episodes of the new series um, of the new season, and I did like it more. I have to say, I did appreciate it more. I think clearly, like the characters have bedded in, and um, there's a confidence to it. I think it's really well shot. You know, for essentially what is a half hour sitcom, a fairly traditional half hour workplace sitcom. I think the characters are interesting. I think Rob McElhenney as the Ian, the creative director, who's this kind of quite self-absorbed, narcissistic, hunky guy who in, has, has a very interesting final sequence in this episode that I won't <laughs> spoil, but I thought that was very bold and funny. Um, I think um, uh, the, the, the cast is generally really good, um, but uh, it's got it's slightly got that thing for me where it's a little bit self-consciously self-consciously written it's a little bit trying too hard to 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 kind of be funny and sometimes i feel like there isn't it's it's like it's trying to depict a world fairly realistically but whenever it tries to be overly funny like when there are actual gags if you like i often feel they don't hit home for me as well as i, I might expect them to so i think there's a certain clash between wanting to be a fairly realistic depiction of this setting of this world and of the kind of people who work for a computer games company and the pressures they face and the egos within it and the competitiveness within all that and making it funny like a traditional sitcom and i'm not sure for me quite like considering how people love this show i'm still not entirely convinced that it's marrying those two elements in the in the way that silicon valley did i thought silicon valley mm. was by and large great and I still think that feels like a better attempt to do this. I know it's slightly unfair to compare, you know, nerdy, geeky, two nerdy, geeky sitcoms, <laughs> but I am. Sorry. And I felt like Silicon Valley managed to pull that off really well. I think the the gag rate in that show and the characterizations, it's just it always worked for me. And I had that winning suspension of disbelief with that show. This show feels slightly like it's all in inverted commas a bit and... It's all a bit much. It's all a bit try hard. I, knew, I use that phrase too often, but that is what I feel about it. And I didn't believe it really, I feel, in the end, I think was my main problem with it. But I still enjoyed it quite a lot. <laughs> How about that for the poster? And for a counterpoint, let's go to our correspondent, Terry White. It uh, isn't funny um, <laughs> at all. And Boyd's entirely right in that it absolutely tries to be funny. The biggest problem with it, right, is that the... All of this stuff, all of those things you see in workplace comedies, which is, you know, jokes about microaggressions, jokes about diversity issues, jokes about um, the personas we create for ourselves at work, about work-life balance, all of those kind of evergreen issues have been done so many other places in a really funny, fresh way and I just didn't feel like this was either funny or fresh. I think they're trying to do something different in that poppy, you know, isn't Because I watched, I, I went back and watched a couple of the first seasons so I had a fucking clue what was going on. But obviously, you know, <laughs> the fact that the, the man above her who was the blocker and the barrier has now been removed um, and how that exposes her and how her challenges to become the leader and not to become, you know, the, the person who's underneath always feeling like they're being hard done to and being blocked by this classic kind of dickhead guy. I just didn't find it very compelling. And I think, you know, there's a whole thing about it. Just I was like, there's a bit where she has a sex dream and it and that bit when Boyd says try hard, the way that was written and used, it just felt really really try hard like 
obvious stuff done in quite a heavy-handed way with a real self-consciousness to be funny. And there's often been in, in shows, you know, think about when The Office is it, it's funniest, right? It takes it takes stuff that re- can really matter in the workplace um, and either flips it on its head or exposes it in some way. Um, and this just doesn't do that. And I didn't find any of the characters particularly compelling. Uh, I didn't think the writing was great. Um, I just thought it was a kind of a very generic work what i've written down is generic workplace comedy <laughs> that thinks it's really eccentric and weird but actually isn't <laughs> at all and that's that's how i felt is that i felt like it wanted to be weird and awkward and um you know a, a little bit eccentric and a little bit out there and it didn't to me feel like any of those things it felt fairly bog standard um and just not funny and it was 25 minutes and i honestly felt like i'd been watching it for an hour wow um <laughs> i didn't think this first episode of season two was great like i certainly it didn't it didn't really engage me. i think at its best this show and i haven't watched all of them i watched a few from season one and i watched the, the zoom episode which i thought was great but like, it's a really high energy show and i and i like that it takes place in this world which is maybe a little underexamined, which is this kind of video game world and they t- look at the power dynamics in that industry um and obviously as someone who has previously been into these particular type of games i rather like that but it is i mean it's it is extreme it is wacky in places they've got like the sociopathic interns <laughs> All the various characters. Wacky. I mean, a the very fact that you, <laughs> that you called it wacky is. I, I think it is like like it's it's in that way that I mean where the characters are wildly exaggerated in their archetypes and places. Do you know what wacky. I mean? Like it's not it's not you know it's not it's not going for very similitude, is it? Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even use the words like that. What's wrong you with that? It's not giving very similar to it. But I think it's bad. It's not giving very similar to it, does it? Yeah. Oh God! Fine. No, I, I, like, I've, I've enjoyed episodes in the past. I didn't, I didn't particularly love this one. I found, I found because it all hinges around Poppy's sort of like, um, uh, you know, confidence issues and her relationship with Iron and these sex dreams that she's having. And I did not find that in any way compelling. So this episode didn't really do it for me. But I do think at its best, it does have a lot of heart, and I think it genuinely can be very funny in it as well. Uh, I'm not sure you'd necessarily have got that from this episode, but um, anyway. <laughs> It's a comedy, so it's never going to be in my top 10 of the year. But uh, nevertheless, I do not think it is a bad show. Um, But Mythic (laughs) Quest Season 2 will be dropping on Apple on May the 7th. And next, this week, we have The Pursuit of Love. Uh, This is Emily Mortimer's slightly quirky adaptation of the Nancy Mitford novel. Uh, It's not a wacky adaptation, Terry. (laughs) Yes, yes, it's Emily Mortimer's wacky adaptation of the Nancy Mitford novel, which stars Lily James and Emily Beecham in a 1940s set series about two friends who grew up together and then discover they want somewhat different things out of life. Isn't that right, Terry? Yes, it is. Um, So... First things first about this show, the cast is fucking unbelievable. I mean, yeah. what a fucking roll call. You've got, as you say, um, uh, why have I written, I've written Lily West and Dominic James. Um, I think they're both <laughs> well. excellent at what they do. Um, <laughs> Lily, so Lily James, as you say, um, Dominic West, Andrew Scott, Dolly Wells is just cobbed in there, mm. Emily Beecham, who I didn't even recognise at first. Um, and behind the camera even more excitingly, I think you've got Emily Mortimer, who also has um, a role in this, but wrote this and directed it. Yeah. And 
because Nancy Mitford, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say Nancy Mitford ain't my ain't my vibe, right? Um, and <laughs> and I didn't. Nancy Mitford ain't Nancy my vibe. Mitford is brilliant. Wow, ain't my vibe. That's your Twitter bio, Nancy right there. Mitford ain't my vibe. Ate my vibe. Nancy Mitford ate my vibe. Uh, Nancy <laughs> Mitford ate my vibe. What is happening? Um, the Emily Mortimer ness of this is what makes it exciting because I wasn't really up for this. I have to say, so it's period and it's that thing we've seen done a lot recently, which is a radical modern retelling. So think about Emily uh, Dickinson. Was it called Emily or was it called Dickinson? Dickinson. Think about Dickinson, the Apple show about Emily Dickinson. Think of The Great, um, which we raved yeah. about on this show. It's the same kind of conceit, which is take a um, quite traditional classical period uh, story and infuse it with modernity. And the way they do that is through editing, for example. There's a lots of uh, pretty good, I thought, visual and stylistic choices that are made here. And the music, So, and we saw this in those other shows, so New Order's in there, Sleater Kinney's in there, La Tigra's in there. So you've got this like new wave, post-punk, riot girl music, which I think is meant to give it some kind of feminist context. Um, and so you, you're aware you're in a very different world. Now, I was just like, oh my God, it's privileged, spoiled, upper-middle-class girls, you know, in the well, the one bit is the 1920s, right? And there's one bit where they're separated as teenagers, and Lily James hangs out of the window of her massive country manor, wailing, and oh, my dreadful lives! Why do we have to live our dreadful lives? And I was like, I cannot be doing with this like spoiled, <laughs> self indulgent, utterly ridiculous women. And yeah, I like fell in madly in love with it. Like, because Lily James is utterly charming. It's very funny. So there's, and and bits where I was like, I don't think this is meant to be funny. So the stuff like, um, their, his, their dad, uh, Lily James's dad, Dominic West is unlike, uh, Dominic, Dominic West, as you've seen him before. He's got this massive strong man tattoo. He bull whips the lawn every dawn and he's pretty violent to the, to the kids. So there's a, bit where like he's shown beating her with a stick he doesn't allow girls to have education so he sees one of the dangers of education as girls getting thick thick thighs from playing too much hockey every christmas they do a thing where he hunts the children literally they like chases them around the fucking land on horseback like they're animals and it's like that it's pretty dark and there's actually a very a very self-aware line in it which says if he was poor he'd have been arrested um which is i'm pretty sure an argument i've made on this podcast before there's something really like charming about it all and once i'd i'd kind of got over my spoiled rich girl thing i actually found it weirdly incredibly moving because what it's about is these two girls as you say, they're very close. They're cousins, but they're kind of best friends as well. And one of them, um, Emily Beecham's character, is much more kind of quiet and reserved and traditional. And uh, Lily James's character is is kind of wild and, and in love with the idea of being in love and is a huge, breathless, romantic. And they, they're kind of diametrically opposed, but it's also about their love affair with each each other and they're not a sexual relationship but their true kind of loving friendship and i found that i've got to tell you 
like weirdly moving. And there's bits about their relationships with their family, like Emily Beecham's mother, they called the Bolter, like, which is like this amazing detail because she basically runs off with a new guy every few months and leaves her daughter um, and then comes back with a pony for her and then runs off with another guy. And when she sees her at this party, she, she goes, hello, Bolter. And she's like, oh, could you please call me mother? Um, and then dispenses this terrible advice about how as a girl, you should never have a friend who's prettier than you because it's just too much of a head fuck. Like it's there's like these weird moments because it could just be played entirely for farce, which I think it has been in other places but it's not entirely false there's like proper emotion and these moments of like dark comedy about how young women are built about how young women are traumatized about how they kind of build their self-confidence and esteem or otherwise about how society molds them into women to be good wives and 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 good mothers like and there's this end scene at at a wedding and Modern Girl uh, by Sleater Kinney plays over it. And there's the the relationship and the emotion between those two girls in that scene is incredible. And there's a, the final shot of Lily James's face, the sense of like what we're set up as women to think we're what we want and we desire and how that actually maybe isn't entirely what we want and desire. I don't know. I found it like pretty, like it was a bit of a core shaker for me and I found it super emotional and, um, and really quite compelling and a really interesting representation of, of, womanhood at that time but also just just generally and a real a real kind of love letter to female friendship and kinship i don't know like this like this got me i've got to say dominic west is funny as fucking this even when <laughs> being a psychopathic like child beater it's so weird um oh and i should say andrew scott is also absolutely mm. incredible oh. in this I, I was thinking you were leaving Andrew Scott to me I don't, but I, um, because... I don't want to like yeah I don't want to because yeah. I do want to leave Boyd a bit to say but I will say Andrew Scott <laughs> is fucking brilliant in this I, everybody's just a brilliant in this um oh yeah I just I just loved it and wasn't expecting to at all and now I feel bad for judge harshly judging rich posh women I mean mm. not that bad let's be frank but no yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, they, they are so privileged that um, there's a, there's a line in it where they they complain about having a north the North Face mansion. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's annoying because the North Face it's a bit of a grubby, huge, big, massive fucking mansion that they that, that, that they live in. Um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I, I, I have to say, I was really enjoying it. I think it's really clever and smart. It does open with a kind of in, in 1941. Yeah, and a very I'm striking of you, scene, Boyd. and then it flashes back <laughs> to the twenties, and there's lots of time flashing back stuff, which is obviously every single. TV drama has to do, but I'm totally fine with it because it's really entertaining and funny and hugely like she uses every trick in the book yeah. every directorial editing slow-mo music as you said trick in the book and not in a and somehow um absolutely makes you care about the characters first and foremost as you say and i think it's really key that she's directing it because like she does flirt with the eroticism of the relationship mm. doesn't she i think like they're naked mm. in front of each other in the bath and all of that and i think that's feels like a very modern you know take possibly the older versions of this book might not have been able to do 10, 20 years ago or whatever. So I thought that was really interesting. But then when Andrew Scott arrives halfway through, <laughs> fucking hell. I mean, if you think Moriarty in Sherlock was like turned up to 11, this is like turned up to a gazillion. And he plays this character called Lord Merlin, who is the ultimate dandy 
person and it, i mean um, you can't accuse it of subtlety because he comes in with this dance this elaborate dance <gasps> i love that looks like a, an 80s new romantic video and to the shoot to the sort to the sound of dandy in the underworld by t-rex just in case you haven't got the yeah. point that he is a fucking dandy and it's brilliantly done and it, the, basically the action stops for about five minutes for him to do this dance with these like semi-naked acting thespian types and it's fantastic and he's so having a great time and i I, for me, there's nothing better in the world of acting than Andrew Scott having a great time playing one of these brilliantly over-the-top characters. And he is fantastic. But everyone in it is brilliant. I agree. And, of course, we, I, I, I have to say, in case people haven't realised, this is the show. I'm going to be a kind of heat-style gossip merchant that Lily James and Dominic West were, sh- were, were, sh- were, were shown to be flirting in tabloid photographs and he had a whole thing going on with his wife. This is that show. Where they that where they you know that all happened as well just to add another layer of fascination and interest because he plays her dad. I've just all I'm saying I'm just leaving it there. But it, I I really enjoyed it. It's really good. It, it, I, I don't know what there is to add to that. Yeah, it's incredibly <laughs> made. Like fair play to Emily Mortimer for this. I think the script is incredible and the way she has made this for the way it is shot the way it is put together as you say every trick in the book is kind of rolled out it's so striking you know from the sound to the visuals um it kind of sweeps you along i don't think i was quite as you know taken with the emotional side of it i think the new word terry i think it appealed to me on a slightly different level i enjoyed it it's probably not really my cup of tea i doubt i will press on with it but uh, i certainly appreciated it like i watched it, i was like this that's a fucking great hour of television I think, and I, but I won't be watching I anymore. I have to say, Lily James. <laughs> right, I feel like I've I've somehow undervalued Lily James because when I when, cousin Rose, well, surely when not. When I saw this this casting, I was like, oh, you know, she can play posh girl, yeah. And and she has. There are so many layers to this performance, and and like I said earlier, and I think this is really important. It's so easy to do stuff like this is straight farce, as straight OTT, and there is a level of OTTness that everybody goes in for. You know, as you say, Andrew Scott, um, but also absolutely um, uh, Dominic West. I mean, totally ridiculous, and yeah. and that really works. But but for them to also for her to be able to put emotion into that this final scene that the emotion you see in Dominic Weston in her particularly like what she does with her face in that final scene like really really moving and i think it's really hard to to within a show like this go from ridiculous dramatic spoiled over the top you know absurdity and then move to a more delicate emotional performance i think that's tonally really hard to do and i just think she particularly does it amazingly well uh the pursuit of love drops on bbc one on sunday may the 9th at 9 p.m also contains the line we must keep our ends up fanny wow she goes i'd rather keep them down thank you Finally this week, we have Bloods, a new comedy on Sky, which stars Samson Kao and Jane Horrocks as a pair of hopeless paramedics causing havoc on the streets of London. Tell us about this one, Boydie. So this is a six-parter on Sky One, um, which is also co-created by Samson Kao, mm. um, who's uh, always brilliant in everything that he does. Um, and Nathan Bryan, who's also an actor. You'll recognise him. He's been in lots of things. He's got quite a striking look. And um, they create it together. And Nathan Bryan wrote certainly this first episode. Um, it's kind of... So the first episode kind of focuses particularly on Samson Kao's character, um, who in the very first scene accidentally kind of electrocutes his partner in the ambulance <laughs> that they work in. And um, kind of it splits up with him, played by Keel Smith, 
with Bino and kind of splits up with him. And then he is lumbered, if you like, with Jane Horrocks. So he's a kind of, you know, normal working class Londoner and he's lumbered with kind of middle-class, middle-aged lady, Wendy, played by Jane Horrocks. And it's kind of a mismatched, you know, will they, won't they become buddies kind of thing, odd couple situation, a fairly standard kind of comedic thing. But then you've got, um, you know, a kind of, and also a really good cast. Again, this is a show with a really good ensemble cast. Lucy Punch from Motherland, Mm. who's always brilliant, is kind of like the boss of the ambulance people. Um, You've got Julian Barrett, um, in it, who's really who's really good, and she's kind of like flirting with. I think he's kind of like a se- one of the senior eminence people. Adrian Scarborough's in it, who's always great. And my favourite characters are played by Sam Campbell and Kevin Gary, who are this kind of have this bromance, and they work together in eminence, and they are adorable. They literally cannot get enough of each other, and they like hug and they high five, and they're constantly telling each other they love them, and it's just a really sweet relationship, um, very well put together. I really enjoyed this. I th- I-, I wasn't expecting necessarily to enjoy it as much as I did I think I think there are it's interesting because I feel like the clash between that there is that the show's partly about between Samson Kayo's character and um, her character uh, Jane Horrocks's character is almost slightly um, paralleled in the in the actual show itself because there's kind of a clash between it being funny um, and with let loads of gags I mean quite broad in some ways and then suddenly it will cut to like a bit of glass being pulled out of a drug addict's <laughs> arm in quite a kind of gory moment it doesn't it doesn't scrimp on the gore of the actual situation that people who work for, for for the ambulance crew have to face week in, week out, day in and day out. And I think part of the whole idea of it, the concept of it is, you know, we, we, we've, we've become more and more um, akin to thinking about the job that these people on the front line do, particularly during the pandemic. And this is kind of underlying the incredible things they have to go through in their lives, in, the, in their professional lives. And at the same time showing possibly the only way of dealing with that is to be funny about it, is to kind of take the piss out of each other and to have that humour. And I think it works. So I think unlike um, Mythic Quest, where for me it felt, you know, it felt try hard and all of that and contrived and um, I had issues with the tone of it and not believing in it. I kind of did believe in this and I think they've done their job very well in coming up with characters who do feel like authentic members of the frontline workers. And I, I I broke my arm, you know, during lockdown last year, late last year. And I had, there was my, and I, I had an ambulance came and, and, and saved me. And it was in the rain, it was in the pouring rain. And I broke my arm, which was kind of numb and hanging to my side. And I couldn't really move. And the ambulance came within, you know, 10, 20 minutes. And I have to say the, the crew, the duo were quite funny, were <laughs> really funny. And, and I remember them being like having to deal with me and being funny about it. And I'm thinking they are brilliant. I remember actually thinking, oh my God, I really wish I should take their names and thank them for the amazing job they did in making me feel like not, you know, getting rid of my nerves and trauma and all of that. And I actually feel that they they were reflected in this show. Like what they were like was very cleverly reflected in this show. And I think it captures kind of the only way you can deal with the daily trauma you must face in that job is by being funny. And I and I think I think it made that point really well. Others may disagree. <laughs> I thought so. Um, we'll get to what James thinks, um, but I <laughs> it is broad, and that and that may be uh, James's uh, yeah. issue. But this is a Sky original, part of the comedy lineup, and we've seen some of the other shows in that, and they haven't always landed fully. I think it's fair to say. So mm. um, that's the likes of Code Four Hundred Four, Intelligence, um, Intelligence Breeders. I think is part of that, is and. 
not all of them have been massively well reviewed on this podcast. This, I think, is definitely one of the more successful ones. I think, I just think Samson K.O. is so not likable, lovable. He's so funny. He's got such a natural charisma around him. And actually, when you think about that kind of setup and this older, you know, um, northern cheery woman, um, uh, that sounds very broad. But to your point, Boy, there's like a lovely, easy authenticity to their relationship that you kind of really buy into. She's like pathologically happy, like cheery. She's yeah. like the classic middle-aged northern woman. Um, but it works because it's her. Like Jane Horrocks does this like impeccably. And there's something about their dynamic and their relationship that I really buy into. It's not the you know the funniest thing i've ever seen but it's like a nice gentle humor as you say there's like julian julian barrett popped up and i was like the fuck is julian barrett doing in this that whole um that whole thing of 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 that unrequited thing he's quite a dark character i really like that little aside um but i i will probably keep watching this um but i definitely feel like out of all of those sky originals this one definitely lands it more and i think that's samson ko i think he's Mm. um incredibly naturally funny this obviously he he created this this was his i think it was a short originally um and i think he's the kind of magic in this but yeah i really like their relationship um i thought there were moments of really good writing um and the even though the comedy is broad i think it it lands enough of the time James, go on. Go on, it evil is broad. James. <laughs> I was I was dreading this, it has to be said. And when it started, like the first scene, I thought, oh fuck me, this 25 <laughs> minutes is gonna last the rest of my life, isn't it? And yet, and yet, it had its moments. Like, don't get me wrong, this didn't have me laughing all the way through or anything, and most of it kind of fell a bit flat for me. But I think Samson Ko in particular, as Malik, just really saved it for me. Like, he has some genuinely, properly, actually mm. made me laugh lines in this. When he's taking the piss out of Jane Horrocks' accent, there's a couple of random things. What's he called? A Brookside? Something like that. It's just, it's just genuinely yeah. funny. Uh, and his kind of really sort of rapid fire comedy. There's also a scene where he he. Uh, faces off against a couple of kids on an estate mm. and that exchange is just gold. Like that It's, great, it's yeah. genuinely hilarious. And he's just so much fun and his lack of self-awareness and his good-naturedness. And as you say, he's a really lovable, lovable fuckwit. And even though it is broad, there's something about there that kind of did tickle me. And a lot of the subplots and whatnot, I, you know, the Julian Barrett, Lucy Punch thing, I was less fond of, though I did think Lucy Punch was good in the same way that I think she's great in Motherland as well. I, I yeah. enjoyed her a lot. But I, uh, I think, yeah, it all came down to Samson Ko for me. Like I got to the end of it, and I was like, oh, you know, I possibly could have watched another one of those. I didn't, crucially, <laughs> but I could have done. And let's be honest, I won't. But you know, so did I hate this? No, I, uh, I did not. So Samson Ko saved it for me, which was, you know, because he was obviously he was last time we saw him was in um, uh, True Seekers on Amazon, which I must admit yeah. that it did that did not work for me, and neither did he in that. But uh, but in this, yeah, did, very much t- so. did I hate this? No. If anybody yeah. involved in the marketing at Sky would really like to use that <laughs> quote anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I am available to uh, give that to posters if you should desire Sky One. Uh, this airs on Wednesday, May the 5th at 10pm.
Also out this week is, of course, Star Wars The Bad Batch, which uh, debuts on Tuesday, May the 4th, which is a 77-minute feature-length introduction to that show. Um, if you watch The Clone Wars, I'm sure you will enjoy that enormously. Uh, if you did not, then you'd probably be a little bit baffled by it. But uh, you know what? Have a go. Um, <laughs> what else is what else is happening this week? Obviously, Jupiter's Legacy drops on Netflix on Friday, May the 7th. We can't review that on this episode because it is embargo, but we will get into that next week. Also, Season 4 of Fargo finally comes to the UK. Drops on Channel 4 on the 9th of May on Sunday at 10pm. Uh, obviously, it's an anthology show, so they're all kind of separate. Although this one, I think, follows on roughly from Season 2, I want to say. Uh, and it's Chris Rock is in this one and uh, apparently is very good indeed um but we can't talk about that on this episode either because again it's embargoed which makes perfect sense given that it aired in the u.s six months ago of course it's fucking embargoed <laughs> anyway that is i have to say i know like first world critic problems but i mean come on yeah to embargo that that the cast can i just say the cast of fargo season four chris rock jesse buckley mm. jason schwartzman ben wishaw jack houston i mean fucking hell the cast is yeah. incredible yeah, it's pretty impressive stuff. Anything else, Boyd, that people yes. should be aware of? Um, uh, I want to admit, Gods of Snooker, which remember uh, Terry oh, mentioned last week, she's very excited about. That starts on Sunday on, on BBC Two. Um, very excited about that three-parter. And people people who um, tweeted me, because I mentioned the drama about the snooker world last week, that, that you can't get it anywhere. I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't know what the rules are now with old BBC One shows, why they're not on iPlayer and why they're not. But this, it doesn't seem to be on any streaming service. You can't get it on DVD, so I'm sorry for even mentioning it, because we just can't watch it anywhere. Anyway, there are two really interesting documents Documentaries on this week I wanted to mention the Battle for Brittany, which is on BBC Ooh. Two on Wednesday. Yeah, it's an exploration of that whole situation, that whole legal situation that she's in, and I think it's fascinating. Um, uh, and Mobin Azar is the reporter who's met the people involved, some of the lawyers involved, and the fan movement involved in supporting her, the Free Britney movement, etc. That's going to be really interesting. And then Terry, you're you are. I mean, this is going to. I mean, trigger warning. This is I've watched this show. Ian Wright Home Truths on Thursday on BBC One, nine o'clock. Do you remember when Ian Wright did um, did uh, did uh, Desert Island Discs, and he talked about how he he was brought up in an abusive yes. family environment where um, his stepdad abused his mother, and his mother was also violent, and just a living in that. And it's a documentary that he's made about that whole situation, his own situation that he deals with, and then he talks to people who've faced a similar situation. It is. Honestly, um, almost unbearably moving, but a brilliant piece of, 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 of TV and reporting from Ian Wright, an absolute um, reminder of what hero he is. Mm. Okay. And what's our pick of this week? The Pursuit of, of love. love. Yeah, I think that's probably the, uh, the safe bet. Right, well, that's it for this week's episode of the Pilot TV Podcast. Please do show your appreciation by hopping over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. On next week's show, we'll not only get to bring you our review of Jupiter's Legacy, but we should be able to talk about Barry Jenkins' The Underground Railroad as well. I'm saying, Boyd, does that sound right? I think so. And Inside Number 9 is back, and <laughs> Motherland is back. Um, oh my god it's a big okay. week of tv as and i've said season two of apple's trying yes both of that show's stars rafe spall and esther smith will be on the show to talk all about that as well and not only that but because as we've promised we will aim 
aim i can't emphasize this enough aim to climb down from our live action pedestals and embrace the cartoon goodness as we belatedly and perhaps a little reluctantly agree to watch invincible uh, that is of course if boyd doesn't derail it with another nihilistic german language horror series for us to watch instead so find out next week pilot out